if you're trying to go to a global maxima, which usually, again, go, requires you to jump out of the box that you're in, it's very hard to do that by looking at data alone. Welcome to Go to Market, a series of discussions with product managers focus on core product skills, career management, and the experiences that have made them successful at companies big and small. I'm Mark, a PM at Google. And I'm Stuart, a PM at Benchling. We started this podcast to learn from people smarter than us, and now we're sharing the insights that we've gathered from talking to other PMs. On today's episode, we have Sylvia Ng. Sylvia and I worked together almost a decade ago at Google at this point. I met Sylvia when we were both on a marketing team. Sylvia joined in an analytics role. Sylvia, what have you been up to lately? It's great to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, Stuart. It's been a while. Since we were at Google, a lot more product, a lot more growth, uh, and generally getting more into GM-type roles. Uh, so I left Google, went to work at some startups, 500px uh, and Scribble Live, and then also some larger companies like um, Shopify that you would know. And up until last December, I was a GM at Shopify. And currently, I'm at a venture studio called Koru, based out of Toronto, uh, again, doing venture GM work. So I'm helping them spin out uh, new companies there. Okay, awesome. And uh, how did you make that switch? Like, what, what got you out of the analytics marketing world into more of a product world and eventually venture? Oh, that's interesting. I think over time, you know, I love analytics. Uh, and the goal, honestly, is to make an impact with the insights that you have, right? So you want people to make some change. I think I was running into a lot of people not having the time or not just not being able to do the changes that I want to see. So I started doing it myself, those changes. And at first, especially in the marketing team at Google, and you'll know this, uh, it was a lot of marketing work. So I started doing more and more marketing that led itself to growth. Um, and then from there, it started becoming product-led growth, which was product. Um, and then from there, I started looking at even broader roles in, in the GM world that included design as well as engineering. Uh, yeah. And so over time, I just started expanding um, the problems that I'm working on. And that led me to where I am now. Cool. And I think this theme of like, I was an advisor, I was coming up with recommendations, but they weren't really going anywhere is one I've often heard also from UX researchers, people who aren't part of the product team, if you want to call it that. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you think through, hey, I actually need to make this transition? Did you have any experiences where you thought you were coming up with really good stuff and then things weren't actually happening based on that? Oh, definitely. Well, I guess I'll say two things about that. Sometimes like, you know, you, you, you look at a problem and you're in your own little world, right? Like you feel like, oh, I can do analysis on maybe this part of the product, that part of the product. And the insights there are interesting, but it doesn't necessarily drive change, right? It, it's almost like the team will always value new learnings. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's important enough or useful enough that it means uh, that you'll actually do anything differently. So I think this is aware, like you need to be aware of whether you're in a box, what I call a box of ana analytics, that's a little too small for people to care about. Uh, and then um, once you're out of that box and actually in a large enough box that, you know, actually should be driving priorities and your learnings are, you know, kind of front and center, um, I feel like there's still the, the problem of aligning with the stakeholders and aligning with the rest of the product team about what they should be doing, right? And a lot of... That for me is 
making sure that your goals are actually aligned with where the product needs to go and what the rest of the team is trying to achieve. It's very easy for you to analyze some side thing and say, okay, this is important, but it might not necessarily be the case, right? So a lot of that is, I think, making sure that your team understands what you're doing and that it's actually aligned with the goals of what they're going after. I I like what you said about in the box, kind of like in the sphere of decision-making or ownership of the product, um, where sometimes I've also seen teams that are coming up with the data to make decisions outside of the box and then folks inside the box using that data. Um, and, And then when product managers themselves are coming up with the data, I find sometimes they they don't have enough focus or skills or time or maybe the charter to actually be the ones that come up with the data. So, how how have you kind of combined the two so that they you know product managers or teams feel like they have equal ownership of product, but also kind of of generating all that data and and the information they need to make decisions? Yeah, I think it's almost like tactically speaking stating your goals up front and discussing them almost at every meeting up front. Because I think a lot of the disagreements end up coming out of the fact that you never discuss what your priorities were to begin with. You know, you'll have a decision that you're making on the product and someone will be like, I think A. And then someone else will come up and say, and it doesn't matter whether what your role is, whether you're in product or in analytics. The other person's like, I, I know, I think B. And like half an hour later, you're arguing between A and B when you, what you really should have started out with is I'm trying to achieve Y and I'm trying to achieve X. And once you realize some, they're actually trying to achieve different things, the, the A and B or whatever you came to the meeting with actually falls out naturally. So you're discussing the wrong thing usually um, when you're in those situations. Um, so yeah, I always recommend that you actually look at the goal first uh, and what the priorities are. And then actually, as a side thing, if you want to carry that box analogy further, I always recommend actually looking at a bigger box than rather staying in the same box. It's almost like, um, hmm, say more, you know, start with why. Yeah, start with why, say more, or um, looking at five whys. It's the same thing. It's, a, it's going up the chain of why you're looking at something and opening up that, that box that you're in to something broader. Because the broader box almost always has a higher impact than you staying in that the, the box that you were in to begin with. What are the five whys? Uh, so yeah, the concept of you asking, obviously, why why are you looking at this one problem that you are, right? If so, if you're analyzing a product, I don't know, let's pick an example. Maybe you're looking at CAC, you know, if we take a marketing example, customer acquisition costs. So the first question you might ask yourself is, well, why am I looking at customer acquisition costs? And a natural answer might be, oh, okay, well, I want to compare this to the lifetime value of the customer that I get in. Simple enough analysis, right? You want your costs of acquisition to be lower than the lifetime value so that you can prove out ROI. Great. Then then there's a question, a next why. Why are you doing that? Why does it matter that your ROI is positive? Is it important that you have positive ROI if you get only one customer? It's easy to have positive ROI, but only one customer. It's much harder when you actually scale out to thousands. So what's actually more important? Um, so you ask that why. And then once you maybe land on an answer, you ask again, why? And so the whole idea is that you keep on going, go at least five times to really, really understand in depth why you're looking at a certain number. And again, it's to get to that goal. It's to understand that the, peel back the layers of the ending and understand your, your goal really well uh, so that you're actually asking the right questions before finding the answers. Yeah, it's like the 
inception must go deeper, must go deeper, but then it's not enough for you to just go super deep and answer all those questions for yourself. You actually have to make sure everybody else has that shared context. For me, at least, I've always found that I can do my job a heck of a lot better if everybody else kind of understands why we're doing something, what we're driving towards, and can come up with new innovative ways of approaching things and answering questions and sort of optimizing on their own based on that shared context. And in my experience, actually going all the way, I have found very little examples of you being able to answer all the way down to five levels of why. Most of the time, the teams fall apart somewhere between the second or third answer. (laughs) Uh, But that's usually enough to align on. Like It's enough thinking to get you to the next piece of, of the puzzle, so to speak. Yeah. And the six why is usually existential life questions like, why am I here? And so so that's why we limited it at five. <laughs> Sylvia, so you let's say you've answered those five whys. You've got a great person doing analytics and coming up with data that helps you drive decisions. I've heard this tension of like data driven versus data informed. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that? Like, how do you actually use data to make effective decisions in your teams, even once you have a shared context across the team? Well, that's a good question. Like, I feel like it's a question of culture, right, that we're talking about here, whether you as a group are going to have a culture where everything is data-driven. And for me, that's very much the data speaks first. You know, whatever the data tells you, you will do. Uh, And for me, data-informed is a little bit more nuanced in that you have the data, but that's not the only input. And yes, the data may be telling you to do one thing, but you're very comfortable overriding it based on whatever other input you have or, or thinking. Uh, and for me, generally, I recommend that product teams do the data-informed one and not be entirely data-driven, uh, mainly because I think there's a lot of nuances to, to data that are very hard to encapsulate. And so from a product perspective, I encourage product managers to think beyond uh, what the data may just be telling you, especially if you're in a more startup scenario where you will have gaps in the data and your data team may not have scaled out very well. Uh, And so, you know, your job requires you at that point as a product manager to fill in those gaps and make some leaps of faith. And generally, I tend to think that if you are, again, in a where the if the problem has a lot of data and you're looking at kind of optimizing something to a local maxima, then I think being data-driven makes a lot of sense. If you're trying to go to a global maxima, which usually, again, requires you to jump out of the box that you're in, it's very hard to do that by looking at data alone, right? So in those cases, I would recommend that you actually don't just look at the data and look at other things. Like It's almost like if you're trying to do a bit of innovation, be a little bit more creative, and invent something that doesn't exist now, you can't do that with just looking at data. It's very hard to do that. Like you, you need to like think beyond what's in your box. That totally makes sense. And and you clearly have the experience to kind of speak to it. So you were the VP of growth at, at, at Scribble Live, and then you became the VP of growth and product at 500px. At some point, you went from owning growth to also owning growth and product. What was that transition like? It was interesting because I think for me, it was very natural transition because a lot of the problems that you're looking at as growth anyway are product problems. And a lot of the the problems I think are solved very similarly in that if you create a new product, you can solve 
those the problem the ultimate problem that you're going after right so maybe we end up discussing a little bit of what is the difference between growth and product really i tend to think of them as quite similar um except that in the growth scenario you're looking at a little bit more of solving company the company's problems whereas in product you're looking more about solving an end user or your customer's problem uh, so I do tend to take a very, I guess, product-led um, mentality to growth, which isn't the case for everybody, but I, that that's kind of my personal view of things. Uh, so for me, that transition was was quite natural. Not to say that my I found it a very easy transition personally, because like if you go into product, you are working way more with engineers, uh, way more on the design side, uh, and so that was a challenge for me personally to start looking at the the how the multiple disciplines work together because uh, coming from an analytics and marketing background that doesn't really encapsulate design or engineering right uh, so it was a learning curve um, for me personally but in terms of the problem set and what we're ultimately trying trying to achieve I, I felt like it was a quite natural thing you started working with engineers and with designers how did you get the credibility or the self-confidence where you felt like oh I can tell people things and they'll believe me or I can speak to someone in the same language, or I can stand up in front of a room and not say something that where maybe I'll embarrass myself. <laughs> it's funny you say that on that embarrassing thing. I find actually a lot of people will give you that credibility if you're very open and, and honest and actually able to be vulnerable in front of them. Like if you come into a situation where you actually aren't the most knowledgeable about a certain area um, in the room and you try to put on that front and say, hey, yes, I know more than you, like, people will see through you right away. Whereas I think if you open up and say, okay, you know, obviously, this is not my forte, we are a team, and I need to lean on you as the expert, it like, creates a trust that you need almost off the bat, because I don't think people necessarily expect all of the leaders to know everything. What they actually really want is for the leader to recognize that they bring a skill to the table, and that the, the those skills will come to the, the forefront um, in the team setting that they have, right? Yeah, I think the the humility and also, you know, saying some of that shared context is where this really helps, where like you can't be the expert at engineering, design, marketing, sales, but you can align people around why you're doing something. With your data background, I'm sure metrics is something that has come up many times during your career and goals and as part of setting shared context and the thing that the team ends up striving for. So yeah, I am a person who, who loves goals. Uh, I, I guess the first thing I'll say, just going back to making sure that the team understands where you're coming from. Like if you look at the Enneagram or any of those kind of um, Myers-Briggs types tests, the people who are goal oriented are like me, are just a subset of people out there. So the thing I have to keep on telling myself is um, as much as I like goals and get jazzed by them and hate to be in situations where I don't know what the goal is, there are a good subset of people who actually are the complete opposite and would rather not have that conversation. They are jazzed by something else, right? They are there to want to support other people, or they are there to kind of make sure that they they see their own value in a place with or without goals. Uh, so I have had to, over time, recognize that I, that I may be like one or a couple of the people in the room who really want that goal orientation and that in order to get other people aligned with my goals, I need, actually need to speak a different language. I need to make them understand where I'm coming from with the goals. 
Uh, so that's one thing. It's like translating what your goal is to what it means to other people. Because <laughs> it, I can come at it with some very like OKR type structure and some people care and some people cannot care less. <laughs> so there's some translation of, okay, what does this goal mean for you? And, and how are you going to help us? And do you, do you have an example that you could talk to maybe? Uh, in terms of the personality types? Yeah, in terms of like how you've motivated teams uh, with people who maybe are a little bit less goal motivated or how you like get from goal to actually something that resonates with different people? Yeah, I think I boil it down in the end, no matter like where your personality type lies. In the end, you want to know what your, you have a view of what your role could be in that goal. Right, so I can come in and say, Oh, okay, Stu and Mark, like, let's build the best ski hill out in the East Coast, right? And build like three locations on three different mountains. You, Stuart, might be the person who is that supportive nature type. So you might not care so much about us having all those locations so much as you support me in doing my goal of the three things. So what I would need to do is translate it to, okay, Stu would be like, your role in this would be to place lifts in all of these locations and I want it out. Um, in this format and I, I need some new innovative thing where it goes super fast. So it's actually boiling it down to what does it actually mean for you uh, and how you support me in that. It's good to recognize that, that there'll be some personality types that just will gravitate more towards really crushing a metric that that's related to a goal and others are just happy doing the work. What I'm hearing is like, there's one part, which is let's, let's ask the whys, let's understand the goals. But then there's another part, which is Let's connect the dots between what those goals are and like what it actually means for how someone can contribute to those goals. Can you talk a bit about goals versus metric? Do you think of them as the same thing? I think of the objective very different from, from the metric. And you know, at, at Google, we had those OKRs of the objectives and the key results, uh, Stu. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am a big believer in those being separate. Uh, and when they get mixed up together, I, I do think it, it kind of incentivizes kind of weird things. Okay. So just so that people know, we're talking about OKRs, objectives, and key results. It's a way of setting, communicating the things you're trying to get done and also how you're going to measure whether you were successful against those. Yeah. The objective being what you're actually, you know, in words, trying to achieve and the key results being how you measure whether you achieved that goal. Those two things a lot of times get mixed up. The most common mistakes that I see actually is that your objective is focused on the company itself and what you want the company to be and actually not what your end users uh, need from you. So as an example, going back to this whole, let's, let's say we're starting a ski hill. I see a lot of goals where companies are like, I'm going to be the go-to ski hill in Eastern Vermont. Yeah. That is a very you-oriented goal. It says nothing about what you will provide to your end customers. It says nothing about the, the value of what you're going to bring, right? So I usually recommend people shift that into a goal of, you know, we will have Eastern Vermont's most fun resort for kids. For me, if you have a product goal that has some some revenue number in it as the objective itself, I, I completely tell people to start all over again. That That is not a way to build product. If you have a growth or marketing goal that has a revenue number in it, that for me is more natural because that's the place that you're coming from. But my next thing is still how. So I usually then still tell them to go back and say, okay, well, now, now plan out how. Uh, and it usually ends up being a product-oriented, like solve a customer problem type goal. Okay, so there's clearly something around 
setting goals around things that matter to your customers that like translate to the value that your customers are going to get to it. Are there any other sort of goals, metrics, conflations that like you've seen that cause people to actually optimize for the wrong thing or go and deliver the wrong thing? Yeah. So I see a lot of people setting their metrics as their end goal, which then incentivizes you to do weird things. So the example that I give a lot is this dinner party example. Uh, So let's say I'm trying to show the world that I'm a good cook uh, and want to have a dinner party, right? Let's say I invite a whole bunch of friends over. And so my goal is to kind of show off my skills of everything I've learned. uh, And through that dinner party, I want to measure how successful I've been uh, in upping my skills by seeing how many people ask for seconds, right? So I'm going to invite 20 people over and I'm going to take the percentage who asked for seconds. That's my metric. Maybe this is a constant group of friends that I come uh, that I get over, and usually only one or two ask for seconds. <laughs> this time, I want to see if I've improved. Now, if I went and actually took my metric, which is the number of people asking for seconds, as my actual goal, what I might then end up doing then is saying, "Okay, wait, I want a lot of people to ask for seconds. I better have just the best food out there." And then what I do is I order takeout. I go to my local Italian restaurant that's five stars. I'm going to put that food in front of them. And yes, I'm going to get more people asking for seconds than the two that I normally have. But was that anything related to my original goal of showing off my skills and improvement? No, it's a completely unrelated. Like it, it, you can't even put those two things together. But I, and when I have an analogy like this, everyone's like, yeah, of course. But then you look at what people do with their their product metrics, and I see that happening literally all the time. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want to get to this funnel improved from here to here. Great. Why? A funnel improvement metric increase doesn't tell you anything of your objective. This is a great transition to where I kind of wanted to go next, which is actually implementing these kinds of things. For a product organization that really isn't data driven or even in, in you know heavily informed by data, how can they start to orient themselves that way? For instance, on my team right now, I, I'm talking to customers fairly regularly, but I it is very challenging to get all the data I need to kind of produce the metrics and you know show what the funnel looks like or something like that. Well, I don't know if this is getting too meta on you. But to answer your question, I first ask, have to ask you why you need those funnel numbers to begin with. Because in a different company, you, you might not, right? It's understanding that. And then also um, in terms of like your customers and the market, how fast do you need to be, right? Because if you're trying to catch up to competitors, speed to market is absolutely important. If you're trying to create a new category, speed to market is absolutely important. If you're in neither of those cases, maybe you can take more time, uh, in which case, sure, go and get funnel numbers. <laughs> in another scenario, it's like, well, that's how I got the funnel numbers. My competitors already launched three things. Yeah. Why bother? We're, we're sometimes making decisions in, in a, a lack of data. We have lots of anecdotal data from direct customer interaction, um, but things like I would like to see drop off rates and stuff like that. Oh, here's the thing with funnel data. It never tells you why. You can analyze and have all the funnel data you want. It will never tell you why. So for me, anecdotal is almost 
in more cases than not, it is more useful to you. Not because it tells you the size of the problem. Like, I mean, the, the real magic is when you marry the two, right? You have the funnel data. You saw that the drop-off was a specific spot. You go out with three or four hypotheses of what can solve that. And you actually then use anecdotal data to say, okay, these are the possible hypotheses because I talked to some people. Otherwise, what you end up doing is knowing that there's a drop-off there. You don't actually know why. And if you remember, Sue, from our Google times, we find that a lot of people don't, uh, we were talking to them about setting up keywords, but people mm-hmm. didn't know what a keyword is. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? This is when um, we were working on AdWords for small businesses, people who were like florists trying to figure out the ins and outs of digital marketing. Yeah. So we were like, oh, it's so easy to set up a keyword. And they're like, what's that? <laughs> How's that have anything to do with me doing advertising? Does that get me more customers? And if you just looked at the funnel metrics for the like create keyword page for your ads, you might see a bunch of drop off and think, oh, we need to make this page easier rather than we need people to actually understand this language or we need to use language that people understand. Sylvia, we've talked about uh, marketing, analytics, product engineering. One of the things I noticed on your background, and this is also a sort of new discipline for me is this idea of product operations, product ops. And I know there's been you know, sales ops, design ops. Talk a little bit about product ops and prod ops and how that fits into a company, where, where something like that starts to become appropriate, your experience with that. Product management in the end, it's kind of still in its infancy, right? If you kind of really zoom out in the history of time and look at you know, when did humans even come up with computers, and then software, and from there, product management in the tech sense that that we the three of us work in and, and understand, it's like a blip, right? So it, we, as an industry, I don't think we really set out well what product actually means. So if you go into schools, for example, do we train people to be product managers really well? I don't think so. Like I think we'd still be hard pressed in this day and age to find a whole education set that you would say, okay, this is the way you become a product manager. And with that, we don't have a whole set approach frameworks for doing product really well. Like I think we solved it um, mainly by being agile and and taking it as it comes. Um, But with the whole kind of maturation of product management, the discipline, what we are starting to see, I think, is a whole class of people who are trying to codify it, right? We're trying to put in the the frameworks and, and kind of really put in place a common worldview of how products should be done in various scenarios. And that's really what I boil down product operations to be, is that within larger companies who want the scale then you need to start understanding, you know, what does that mean for culture, the culture of the company? How does, uh, you know, how do different product managers play with each other? How do you cut down product scope um, for various engineering teams? All of that complexity that comes with scaling, you start to naturally want to put some thinking and boundaries uh, around it. And that's what product ops really is. So it's basically, how do I product at scale? Yes, Yeah, I really like the summary of products basically as how do I product at scale? How do I make up for some of the gaps that exist in like product school uh, in terms of people learning the skills to be effective product managers? Um, And also, uh, how do we codify how, you know, product at this company works? 
sometimes there are real external requirements around how you have to actually do you know, product design, product delivery, rolling out to customers. There might be compliance regulations. And that's where something like ProdOps can really come in helpful. Um, Sylvia, I want to ask, you know, what, one thing we tend to get a lot of value from is what sharing with other people, what are the things that you look to recently in terms of pro tips, in terms of maybe content out there to help you further your skills as a PM? A lot of what I found helpful to myself is actually more on the personal development side of things, because uh, I feel like a lot of PMs end up in their own heads. Um, or I don't know, maybe I could be projecting myself. <laughs> uh, but the things that have helped me actually, or I found interesting and have recommended to people are on how happiness and an outlook of optimism can help you achieve results. So books like The Happiness Advantage or 10% Happier. Uh, are things that I've recommended to people in terms of just, you know, having a rose to the glass and outlook on life actually will bring you more opportunities. Because a lot of product management requires that you put yourself out there. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, have that fear, natural fear and anxiety of going to something new. You know, it, it's always very comfortable to be in your box. It's much more uncomfortable to go beyond that and try to shake up, bark up the tree, shake things up, so to speak, and align with other people. So how you get that comfort, especially without necessarily having data, for me has been a big theme. Uh, and how I normally get people to get to that comfort is to understand that when you take that view of optimism, it, it will help you to overcome a lot of that fear. So that's one thing. And, and then the other thing is actually another book called The Courage to be Disliked. So this book, it's actually more about understanding philosophically speaking, well, one, why do people want to be like to begin with, <laughs> like the history of mankind, right? Like and how we're in our genes coded to be social and needing social support in order to survive back in caveman days. That is no longer true, but we still all want to be liked and want to be socially included because it's coded into our genes. But if you strip that away and more logically thinking with your higher mind, so to speak, to use Tim Urban's analogies of higher mind versus primitive minds, with your higher mind, think really in the end, the only thing that you're comparing to is yourself. It becomes a whole different lens on your reality and how you can become the best version of yourself. So those are the two things that I would recommend. I love that. I feel like so much of this advice tends to be uh, here are some skills you can pick up. Here's a framework that I wrote down. But how you approach the work, how you feel about it, and how you end up sort of changing the way you act based on your worldview is such a huge driver in your success. Sylvia, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great catching up with you again after all these years. It's awesome to see how successful you've been. Thanks for joining us from the Ski Slope. Thanks for having me. Awesome to be here. 